The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. It was an invisible place, a place so hidden that the early explorers who sailed up the western coast of the North American continent passed the massive bay right by without ever noticing it. Because nearly dead center in that bay was a large island that blended right in with the actual continent that lie beyond, creating an optical illusion that it was all one seamless landmass. Early Spanish and English maps detailing the western coast, along what we know today as San Francisco Bay, don't show the bay as being there at all. In 1542, Spanish explorer Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo failed to notice the bay more than once as he sailed up and down the coast looking for the fabled Northwest Passage. That legendary sea route sailors had sought for centuries that would provide them a direct route to Asia. Cabrillo never found the Northwest Passage, nor did he ever find San Francisco, for that matter. Terrible storms blocked his path and would eventually cause him to head home empty-handed. Although, Cabrillo never made it home either. During his voyage home, Cabrillo shattered his leg and died of gangrene, causing his men to finish the journey without him. In 1579, England's most famous explorer, Sir Francis Drake, led another expedition up the coast looking for the Northwest Passage, during which he proved to be a little more accurate in mapping the coast than the Spanish had, although he too still managed to miss the bay as well. Once again, that massive island and a blanket of fog managed to fool even the most seasoned of explorers. Then in 1602, another Spanish explorer named Sebastian Vizcano returned home with tales of a magnificent harbor rich with timber for shipbuilding. Although even these stories would largely be discounted by his own people were convinced that nothing was there by all the previous maps that had been drawn before him. It wouldn't be until the 1770s before the Spanish and other explorers began to finally recognize the error of their ways and acknowledge what had been there all along. In 1775, a young naval lieutenant named Juan Manuel de Ayala became the first to officially sail into the bay. And from there, he anchored near the largest island at San Francisco Bay Center, the very same island that had caused so many explorers before him to miss the bay entirely. He named this island De Los Angeles, Angel Island. But it wasn't the only island he found or named in San Francisco Bay during that expedition. There was one other he found, a smaller rocky slab of land that was difficult to approach even by boat. This tiny island proved to be mostly inhospitable to any living creature, other than the large number of pelicans who squawked along its shores. As a result, D. Ayala 
would name the place after its primary residence, the island of the Pelicans, or as it was called in Spanish, De Los Alcatraces. It was a name that would eventually become anglicized into the more notorious version we know today. A name that would become synonymous with the supposedly escape-proof federal prison they would build on the island's rocky shores. That name, of course, is Alcatraz. I'm Nate Hale, and the boys and I are going over the wall tonight at midnight. Pass it on. And this is The Conspirators. It's the most infamous prison in America, and quite possibly the world. Countless movies, books, and TV shows have been made about the place, most of which seem to center around its most famous escape, which occurred in 1962. But the history of Alcatraz is a lot richer and more interesting than just the one, admittedly remarkable, prison escape. Don't worry, we'll get there, I promise. But before we get to Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, I want to tell you first about where it all started. In 1822, the Mexican government inherited the land title for California from Spain. And with it went Monterey and San Francisco, and all the little islands dotted along the coast. In 1846, John Charles Fremont, the first governor of California, purchased Alcatraz Island for $5,000, recognizing the strategic value of the land. Because of where it was situated within the bay, the U.S. military soon began using the island as an armed fortress to drive away invaders who might be interested in attacking the nearby boomtown of San Francisco, which had grown by leaps and bounds during the Great American Gold Rush. By 1863, the military had set up a trio of defensive positions at three strategic points throughout the bay, including Alcatraz Island, forming a so-called Triangle of Fire where no invading forces would dare enter. By the time the Civil War was in full swing... Alcatraz Island was the home of, among other weapons of war, four massive 36,000-pound cannons which were capable of sinking hostile ships up to three miles away. The guns of Alcatraz were able to let loose a barrage of nearly 7,000 pounds of iron shot in a single barrage. But the massive armaments across Alcatraz Island never saw any of the action they were intended for. Neither Mexican nor Confederate forces ever tried to invade, and about the only time the army ever really let loose with the guns turned out to be a major embarrassment. On July 3rd, 1876, the army decided to celebrate the U.S.'s centennial by opening up a massive barrage on an old Navy schooner. But despite the thousands of pounds of ordnance that were fired at the ship, the old schooner failed to sink, and the army had to manually set it on fire in order to make it go down. In 1861, 400 soldiers were stationed on Alcatraz Island in the island's first fort. During the 1860s, a group of Confederate sympathizers who called themselves the Knights of the Golden Circle cooked up a scheme to overthrow the California government and seize the state in the name of Jefferson Davis. The group, which was led by a shady financier named Asbury Harbingdon, had plans to capture a Union warship outside San Francisco Bay and blockade the harbor. But Union spies caught wind of what the Knights of the Golden Circle were planning. And on the night they were going to set their plan into motion, 15 members of the conspiracy were arrested, and the plan fell apart. 
These men became the very first prisoners to be incarcerated in the military fort on Alcatraz Island. By August of that year, the army began sending more and more Civil War prisoners to the island, which everyone believed to be nearly inescapable, because it was so isolated and heavily armed. Men were packed together like sardines in the tiny basement of the main guardhouse, where there was no running water, and the place was teeming with lice, rats, and disease. Within the decades that followed, the army began to build up the prison facilities. After the Civil War was over, the military began sending Native American prisoners to the island that they deemed troublesome. Among those were 19 members of the Hopi Indian tribe, who in 1895 were sent to Alcatraz after they refused to allow their children to attend a government boarding school. On March 21, 1907, Alcatraz officially became a United States military prison. Shortly thereafter, construction began in earnest to reshape the existing buildings into a real functioning prison. When the main prison building was completed in 1912, at the time it was the largest steel-reinforced concrete structure in the world. By the late 1920s, the prison, which had been designed to hold up to 600 inmates, was nearly at capacity. In the early days, military prisoners were held at Alcatraz, whose crimes ranged from minor drunkenness all the way up to serious crimes like rape and murder. There were approximately 80 escape attempts during the military prison era. Several inmates managed to break free of their cells and would often improvise flotation devices or just try to swim for it in order to make it to the mainland. Most of these inmates were quickly recaptured and many were shot. 17 were known to have gotten away with it. In the fall of 1926, Colonel G. Maury Crelle took over as commandant of the disciplinary barracks when he caught wind of a plot involving several prison inmates who planned on rushing towards the water's edge and swimming for San Francisco. But before the plan could fully take shape, Crelle called all the men working labor details together and lined them up along shore. He announced to the prisoners that he had been made aware of their escape plan, and he told the men before him to go ahead and swim for it. He assured them none of them would be pursued. However, he told them, he wouldn't make any guarantees that the hungry sharks would eat them as they swam for shore. Not a single inmate took the colonel up on his offer. After that, the number of escape attempts dropped dramatically. In 1933, the army finally decided the prison was too costly for them to keep running. So the facility was transferred to the Department of Justice, who had big plans for it. In the Prohibition era, gangsters became kings across America. Organized crime was widespread throughout the United States, and the U.S. government had to do something about it. In 1921, J. Edgar Hoover was appointed the assistant director of the FBI, and he would assume full control of the Bureau just three years later, in 1924. Hoover would go on to become the most powerful FBI director in history. During his tenure, he exercised immense political power in Washington. Whatever Hoover wanted, Hoover got. Upon hearing that Alcatraz was now in the possession of the Department of Justice, Hoover decided that Alcatraz would be turned into the country's ultimate super prison, meant to house the worst of the worst criminals. Alcatraz would go on to hold such criminal superstars as Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, Robert the Birdman Stroud, and James Whitey Bulger. Inmates spent 16 hours a day confined to their cells, 
Those without work assignments could spend up to 23 hours a day locked up. The prison cells were set up in four internal cell blocks, lettered A through D. None of these cells had outside-facing windows. The bars were specially designed with supposedly saw-proof steel cores. Each prisoner was housed alone in an individual cell. This was done to keep down the incidents of prison rape and violence, as well as making it more difficult for prisoners to conspire with one another. Strangely, there were some reports of some federal prisoners actually requesting they be transferred to Alcatraz, just so that they could get a room to themselves. In the early days of the prison, there was no recreation, and the only things prisoners were entitled to were food and clothing. Everything else was a privilege to be earned. There were rules for everything, and the official prisoner rulebook even contained one final rule stating that if a prisoner did anything that didn't fall within the established rules, the guards could create a new rule covering it on the spot. For years early on, there was even a strict rule about no talking among the prisoners. Whenever they were in line or gathered together for meals, there was a strict code of silence enforced. The constant silence was thought by some to be cruel, and even literally maddening. Life on Alcatraz could be demoralizing and soul-deadening. Al Capone once famously declared that The Rock, as the prison came to be known, had beaten him. In 1937, a convicted robber and murderer named Ruth Percival managed to get his hands on a hatchet in the prison shop and chopped his own fingers off. As other prisoners tried to yank the bloody axe from his remaining hand, he begged them to cut his other hand off. Some stories persist that some unruly prisoners received extra punishment by being shackled overnight in the Civil War-era tunnels that lie just below the main prison building. One such unlucky prisoner was purportedly found dead the following morning, still shackled down below. Events like that probably never should have happened, even though likely they did. There was one guard to every three prisoners, after all. This beat the national average, which was usually around 12 or 13 prisoners for every guard. Prison guards lived on the island along with their families. Children commuted by boat to the mainland to attend school. But other than that, the children played together in their own little neighborhood just outside the prison walls. Along with housing for themselves and their families, there was a small general store and even a two-lane bowling alley for the guards' entertainment. D-Block was reserved for the worst offenders, as well as some military prisoners. That's also where they kept the specially designed punishment cells they called the Hole. These were tiny cells with no furnishings other than a hole in the corner for a toilet. And when the steel door was closed, the space inside would leave the prisoner in total darkness. Metal detectors were positioned at strategic entry points throughout the facility. Gun towers were set up at strategic points along the perimeter. Tear gas canisters were installed in the ceiling of the dining hall and could be activated remotely in case of a prison riot. Officially, during the years Alcatraz was in operation, there were only 14 attempted escapes. And although the prison had a reputation as being escape-proof because of its number of redundancies to prevent escapes, prisoners still tried from time to time. Even if a prisoner managed to get outside the prison walls, the rocky landscape offered no cover for prisoners from the armed guards up in the towers. And beyond that, there were still miles of the bay's cold, choppy water to contend with between Alcatraz and the mainland. Not to mention the sharks that swam in those waters. 
And while in most cases, prisoners who did manage to get outside the walls were quickly recaptured, some were never heard from again. It's commonly thought that the 1962 escape was the only successful escape from Alcatraz. But there was at least one other that predated the 62 incident by a quarter century. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. On December 16th, 1937, a thick fog swept over San Francisco Bay. On that day, a pair of convicted bank robbers named Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe were working in the prison's tire repair shop. At 12.50 p.m., a routine headcount showed all prisoners were accounted for. But during the next count that occurred at 1.30, both Cole and Rowe were missing. Two iron bars and three heavy panes of glass in one of the shop's windows were discovered to be broken out. They then slipped down to a high wire fence under cover of the fog. From there, they forced open a gate lock and dropped 20 feet to the beach below. And that's where their trail ended. It's believed that the two escapees entered the water using floats made from either stolen tires or fuel canisters. Prison officials believe the two men likely drowned. At that time, the tides were flowing somewhere between 7 to 9 knots, which would have been difficult for even an expert swimmer to navigate. Not to mention the thick fog that helped them stay undercover would have made visibility practically zero out on the water. But despite the general belief that the men drowned, a massive FBI manhunt ensued. J. Edgar Hoover was not about to let anyone believe that Alcatraz was anything but inescapable. But despite searching far and wide, Cole and Roe were never found. In the following months, numerous witnesses came forward claiming they had seen the two escapees in public. A 1941 newspaper article declared that the men might be living in South America. Later on, a cab driver in Cole's hometown of Seminole, California, claimed that the two men actually shot him. The escape by Ted Cole and Ralph Rowe has been almost forgotten to history. And although it's likely the two men drowned in San Francisco Bay... Much like the more famous escape that occurred in 1962, no one knows for sure. The thing to keep in mind about the 1962 escape by Frank Morris and Clarence and John Anglin is it probably never would have succeeded if it had occurred a couple decades earlier. By the late 1950s and early 60s, a combination of budget cuts, loosening of the rules, and a general deterioration of the building itself all came together to help form the most famous escape in history. Frank Lee Morris had been in and out of prisons all his life. 
He was convicted of his first crime at age 13. And by his late teens, he had been in and out of jail for a variety of crimes, including narcotics possession and armed robbery. While in prison, he was reportedly tested as having a superior level IQ, which he put to use when he escaped from Louisiana State Penitentiary, where he was serving 10 years for bank robbery. He was recaptured a year after his escape and shipped off to Alcatraz. In his official prison records under occupation, it actually said, Escape Artist. John and Clarence Anglin were a couple of convicted bank robbers who bounced around through a series of federal and state prisons. After several repeated failed escape attempts from an Atlanta prison, the brothers were finally sent to Alcatraz. But even though prison records stated that the two brothers should be kept apart, some clerical error allowed the duo to be housed in neighboring cells in Alcatraz. Alan Clayton West was the fourth member of the group of escapees, and it's through him that we know a lot about their plan. He was a car thief who made an unsuccessful escape attempt from a Florida facility. And although he was part of the plot to escape Alcatraz, as you'll hear, he didn't make it out with the other three men. West would later claim that he was the mastermind behind the escape, although most people generally believe it was Morris who came up with the plan. Whomever it was who came up with the plan, it all centered around the realization that the prison walls had begun to crumble under all those years of salt air, and that behind the cells lie an unguarded utility corridor. Beginning in December 1961, the men began digging out the ventilation ducts in their cells using a series of improvised tools that included discarded saw blades they discovered on the prison grounds, spoons stolen from the mess hall, and a drill they made out of the motor of a broken vacuum cleaner. They hid their work by making fake ducts and wall pieces out of painted cardboard and paper mache. Morris took up playing the accordion to cover the noise they were making. Although it's commonly believed the group would have kept their plans tightly under wraps, it's very likely a number of other inmates were well aware of the group's escape plan. For example, on the opposite side of the row of cells on B Block were the segregated African-American prisoners, who undoubtedly would have heard them working and climbing up the walls. Yet no one gave them up to prison officials. The four men managed to steal dozens of raincoats that they turned into makeshift life preservers and a six-foot by 14-foot life raft. It was later discovered that Morris had a copy of Popular Mechanics in his cell containing an article that provided him details on how to make a flotation device. To help conceal their work at night, the men made dummy heads out of soap and toilet paper that they painted with stolen paint from the prison shop and topped with hair from the prison barber shop. At night, they placed the dummy heads under their blankets to make it look like they were sleeping. On the night of June 11, 1962, the men were finally ready to make their escape. For Morris and the Anglin brothers, things went off according to plan. But West ran into trouble because he had used contact cement to keep his phony vent grill in place. And when it came time to go, he had trouble removing the vent, delaying his escape and causing the other three men to leave him behind. When the escape was discovered the following morning, West cut a deal to receive no punishment if he explained in detail how the plan was executed. From the service corridor, Morris and the Anglin brothers managed to climb a ventilation shaft to the roof. 
They made a huge noise when they busted out of the shaft, but because no further sounds were heard, none of the guards ever went to investigate. Just a few years earlier, there had been a main guard tower on the roof right there where the three men escaped, but budget cuts had closed it down. If that tower had still been in operation, they never would have gone free. They slid 50 feet to the ground below down a kitchen vent pipe, then climbed a pair of 12-foot barbed wire fences to make their way to shore. They inflated the raft using a concertina they had stolen earlier, and sometime around 10 o'clock, it's believed they made their way into the water headed towards Angel Island two miles to the north. To this day, it's not known for certain whether the three men made it or not. Officially, FBI investigators believe that the three men likely drowned. Following their escape, a massive land, sea, and air search was made for the men. Only no trace of them ever turned up. On June 14th, a Coast Guard cutter pulled a homemade paddle out of the water. A week later, shreds of raincoat material believed to be remnants of the raft washed up on Angel Island, along with a wallet wrapped in plastic that contained the names, addresses, and photos of the Anglin's friends and family. The day after the escape, a prison boat picked up a deflated life jacket made of the same materials the raft had been made from floating in the water about 50 yards away from Alcatraz. No human remains of the men were ever found, although much later the crew of a Norwegian freighter would claim to have seen a body floating in the water that night dressed in prison garb. According to West, the plan had been for the men to steal a car once they reached land. But since no cars were reported stolen right after the escape, the FBI took this as further evidence that the men drowned. The escape proved to be just one further nail in Alcatraz's coffin. Budget cuts and the skyrocketing cost estimates that it would have taken to refurbish the place forced the prison to close down about a year later. Remarkably, the escape by Morris and the Anglins wasn't even the last escape attempt from the facility. Just a few months later, another pair of prisoners managed to squeeze their way out a window, but were quickly recaptured. Today, Alcatraz is a major tourist destination for the San Francisco area, attracting tens of thousands of people each year. Legends persist to this day that the prison is also extremely haunted. Former guards and prisoners, both, have come forward with stories of unexplainable noises and other supernatural occurrences. In fact, legend has it that visitors to Alcatraz today can sometimes hear the sound of Al Capone's banjo used to play in the prison band echoing through the halls. Another ghostly story about the prison tells of an unnamed prisoner who kept complaining to some uncaring guards about the strange flickering lights that floated in his cell keeping him awake at night. The following morning when they went to check on the inmate, he was found strangled to death, even though he'd been alone in his cell all night. Between 1969 and 1971, a small group of Native Americans staged an occupation of Alcatraz, announcing to the world that they were reclaiming it for the Indian people. The U.S. government forcibly evicted them on June 11, 1971. Coincidentally, that date was the nine-year anniversary of Frank Morris and the Anglins' escape from Alcatraz. Although the FBI later closed the investigation into the men's escape, some tantalizing clues have surfaced in recent years that suggest at least the possibility that some or all the men survived. In 2003, the show Mythbusters attempted to recreate the escape and were able to demonstrate that it was at least plausible that they could have made it to shore. As luck would have it, the men escaped at just the perfect time of night when the normally heavy currents would have turned in their favor. 
In 2011, a National Geographic program claimed that footprints were found in Angel Island right after the escape, and that in fact a car really had been reported stolen in the vicinity that night. In recent years, members of the Anglin family have even claimed that they have been in contact with the brothers years after they went missing. One relative claimed to have actually spoken to one of the brothers on the phone. Other family members claimed to have received Christmas cards bearing the brothers' handwriting over the years following the escape. They even have a story of a family friend who allegedly ran into the brothers living under assumed names in Rio de Janeiro. They even produce photographs which purportedly show the brothers alive and well in Brazil years after their escape. Photographic analysis has shown that it's at least possible the two men in the image could be John and Clarence Anglin. Then one of the Anglin's 11 siblings made a deathbed confession that he had remained in constant contact with his brothers all the way from 1963 to 1987. In 2018, the FBI was forced to reopen the investigation into the escape after getting hold of a letter received by the San Francisco police allegedly written by John Anglin. The letter, which arrived in 2013, said, My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. The author of the letter then went on to say that Frank Morris died in 2008 and Clarence Anglin died in 2011. The FBI examined the letter for fingerprints, DNA, and a handwriting analysis, but have stated the test results all came back inconclusive. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to give a big shout out to my latest Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to Hale and Victoria for helping support the show. Patrons to the show get access to all sorts of goodies like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course access to our exclusive mini-episodes. If you're interested in helping support the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're interested in learning more about Alcatraz, then I highly recommend you check out the book Alcatraz, A Definitive History of the Penitentiary Years by Michael Eslinger. It's a really great book, and it helped provide a lot of the backbone of this episode. If you're looking for other things you can do to help support the show, something else you can do is by giving us a positive rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not using Apple, not to worry, we're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks as always, and I hope you'll join us again next time.